big deal. And church might not be a big deal to you. So why love the church? Why be committed to the church and give of your time and your energy and your resources to the church? That's what we're after in this series. And for some of you probably hearing that, hearing this topic makes you a little uncomfortable. I'm probably stepping on some toes here. A lot of you, you might be more faithful to Bedside Baptist, where Pastor Sheets always makes you warm and comfortable on Sunday mornings. Some of you will get that a little bit later on. Than you are an actual church. right? And, and if your church attendance is about as frequent as an ACC championship for my beloved Wake Forest Demon Deacons men's basketball team, then this series is going to confront you, and it's going to challenge you, and it's going to step on your toes. But the people that I really want to challenge are the people who show up week after week after week. So don't think that just because you come here every week and you drop something in the offering plate that, that this series is not for you. I'm asking you, do you love the church? Are you committed to her well-being? Or do you love to complain and critique the church? Again, I'm not talking about the church as a building or the church as a Sunday event. I'm talking about the church as God's people, the people who belong to God and who follow Jesus together. And so are you committed to partnering with one another to advance the gospel for the glory of God. Do you love the church? Well, now after putting everyone on edge, we are in defense mode, and, and perhaps you're saying, man, this guy, he's just trying to guilt me into attending more or giving more so that his church looks like it's growing. Right, if, if you find yourself kind of getting into that defensive mode right now, let me say two things to you. First, I'm not trying to promote my church because I don't have ownership over any church. This is not my church. Only Jesus gets to claim possession over the church. Also, I'm the interim pastor. Right? Interim is fancy talk for temporary. Okay? Temporary, right? And I'm not trying to guilt anyone into anything. Like, I, I do not want you to be compelled to action that is motivated by guilt. Not at all. What I really want to do is I want to show you that being committed to the community of faith, being committed to the church, is for your joy. I want to show you that God wants you to be involved in the fellowship of believers that it will make your life better. Even though it will cost you greatly, you will be enriched because of it. And the second thing I want to say, if you're kind of in that defense mode, is I get it. I understand why church might not be a big deal to you. Because as I said last week, the church can be hard to love. The church can be frustrating and disappointing. And I'm sensitive to the fact that some of you have been hurt badly by the people who make up the church. 
I'm sensitive to the reality that the church is not perfect because the people in the church are not perfect. Right? And when people get close, when imperfect people get close, as church people are supposed to get close, people are going to get hurt. You know, some of you have been turned cold by the hypocrisy in the church. Some of you have been turned cold towards the church because you have seen church people attack one another. You've seen things get nasty in the church. Maybe you've turned cold towards the church because the church failed you in some way. Perhaps you were, there was a season in your life where you, were, you had these earnest questions about who God was and who He was for you, and you looked for the church to answer those, and, and they failed you. Maybe you've turned cold towards the church because you see the church is all talk and no action. And churches can move slow, and sometimes people feel that they can move faster without them. People aren't perfect, and neither are churches. And some churches are really messed up. So I'm asking this question for my own benefit as much as I am for yours. Why love the church? Why love the church? They can be so full of problems. Today we're going to look at one of the hardest churches there ever was to love. The church at Corinth had some major issues, y'all, okay? The church at Corinth was messed up. Up. Sometimes people refer to churches as, man, that's a problem church. You know, over there, that church, that's a problem church. That's a pastor's graveyard. You don't want to go there. Stay away. The church at Corinth was definitely a problem church. They had a bunch of them. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go to 1 Corinthians, or perhaps you have your phone, you got a Bible app. Pull up 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. It's towards the end. And we're going to be looking at chapter 1. That's where our focus is going to be in the first nine verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're turning there, as you're getting there, I'll give you a little bit of background on the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was in the city of Corinth, and Corinth, the city, sat at the crossroads for where ships would travel. Okay, so a lot of people came in and out, in and out of Corinth. A lot of sailors in and out of Corinth. And this made it possible that what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And men traveling on their journey could stop in Corinth, have a one-night stand, and no one back home would ever find out. And so sexual immorality was on the rampage in Corinth. And Corinth became this melting pot of different religions. And there were many gods that were worshipped in Corinth. And when the Apostle Paul became a Christian, he aimed to go to places like Corinth where they had never heard of Jesus Christ. And so during Paul's second missionary journey, we learned that he went to Corinth and as he began to share about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, people began to believe and they began to convert and a church was started. So Paul helped to start this church at Corinth. He planted the church there. But again, Paul had this calling to go to the places that had not yet heard about Jesus, so he, he moved on from Corinth. But as you might imagine, Paul from time to time would want to check in with those churches that he had been a part of and he had helped to start. And so he's interested in how things are going at Corinth, at the church there. And the report that he gets wasn't all that great. 
And so somewhere between two and five years after Paul had been in Corinth and ministered there and helped start that church, get it going, he wrote this letter that we now call 1 Corinthians. And it's through this letter that we learn about the problems at the church there, but we also learn about how God was at work at Corinth. And so look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a typical greeting that you're going to read from Paul in many of his letters, where he says grace and peace. He, he's telling, okay, who it is that is writing. It's him, Paul, who he's with, Sosthenes, who he's writing to, the church at Corinth. And he sends warm greetings. So this, this is pretty typical. But I want to pull two, two things out of these first three verses. First, these followers of Jesus, as all followers of Jesus are, were sanctified in Christ. That means that they were set apart in Christ, right? That means that they were called, this church was called, to reflect God instead of reflect their city and surrounding culture. They were to be in the world, but not of the world, not like the world. They were to live different from the culture around them. But we'll learn in just a minute that they were failing at this. The second thing I want to point out, just tag this, is that Paul is writing to one particular church, Okay, so in the Bible, church is talked about in two ways. In one sense, church is talked about in referring to all of God's people in every place across all time. That's what you might have heard referred to as the universal church, capital C. All of God's people across all of time. The other way to talk about church in the New Testament is to talk about specific local group of believers who gather together, live in close geographical proximity to one another. That's known as the local church. Okay, so First Baptist Eichard, this is a local church, and Paul was writing to a local church, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. I bring this up because in talking about loving the church, it's pretty common and it's easy for people who are Christians to say, yeah, I, I love the church. I mean, I love God's people. I, I love all people. But yet they're not committed to a particular local church. Is that okay? Is, is that enough? Right? This has become so common that I'm no longer shocked when, when I'm talking to a person and and learn that they are a Christian, and that they love to listen to Christian radio, and that they love certain Christian ministries, and they support those Christian ministries through their money and even through their time, but they're not plugged in to a local church. Well, get this. The New Testament uses the word ecclesia. We talked about that last week. Ecclesia, which we translate as church. It uses that word 13 times to refer to the universal church. Okay, so 13 times, a baker's dozen, the New Testament refers to all of God's people everywhere across all of time when it says church. 
Compare, compare that to the 90 times, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 times the New Testament refers to church. It's referring to the local church. Okay, so the overwhelming majority of times in the New Testament, when you see the word church, it is referring to the church in the local sense. I want to read you a couple quotes. These come from Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Total Church, and they just nail it here, okay? They just say this way better than I could, so let me just read this. They write, Commitment to the church is easy while the church is an abstract, universal reality. But the New Testament assumes commitment to real people in real local churches with all their faults and failures. They go on. It is easy to love the church in the abstract or to love people short term. But we are called to love people as we share our lives with them. This is the pathway of Christian growth and holiness. Commitment to the people of God is expressed through commitment to specific congregations. So if you say, yeah, I love God's people, I love all people, but you're not committed to a local church, how are you expressing that love? It's all about visibility, y'all. How can a watching world see that we love one another if we're not actually in one another's lives? How are we making it visible? I want you to know that I've benefited from, from many pastors um, over the years who, who I've never even met, right? Pastors on East Coast, West Coast, who we can tap into their ministries either online or on the TV. And, and two of those men that I've been influenced by and have benefited from are, are two men a little bit closer here in North Carolina. And, and so I imagine that they have pretty big influence maybe in some of your lives as well. Those two men are, are Charles Stanley of First Baptist Atlanta, Georgia, and Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? And, and so I can think back that one time in high school, I turned on the TV, and, and there Dr. Stanley was preaching, and he said something that has just shaped me, okay? He said that people consider Christ by observing those who claim to follow him. I've said that to you before. People consider who Christ is by observing the people that claim to follow him. I don't know if that originated with Dr. Stanley, but that's who I first heard say that, and that has shaped me. On another occasion, this was only about two months ago, I was on, on the web, clicking in, seeing what was going on with Elevation Church, listening to one of Stephen Furtick's messages. And in that message, he allowed one of his members to share a testimony. And that man said that the greatest investment in his life was finding a church and plugging into a church that made the gospel relevant to his children. Did you hear that, dads? This man's testimony is that the greatest investment in his life was plugging into a church and modeling commitment in a church so that his son and his daughter could be engaged with the gospel. That's powerful. That is shaping me as I look to becoming a dad. Right, and so I have benefited from Charles Stanley and Stephen Furtick. But unless you live in Atlanta, Georgia, or Charlotte, North Carolina, you should not consider them your pastor. 
If you move to Charlotte or Atlanta, I encourage you to go to their churches. But if you think that you can experience church on a screen in your living room, then you are missing what church is really about. I think you get my point. So what were the faults and failures that made the church at Corinth hard to love? Why was the church at Corinth so hard to love? Well, a huge problem in the church was that disagreements had led to quarreling, fighting, and the quarreling had led to division. You've heard of church splits, right? Church splits are nasty. They're tragic. Most of the time in a church split, the people were divided into two groups, right? Sometimes the pastor's got his team and the deacons have their team. And one group usually ends up getting so upset that they leave. Well, the church at Corinth, it wasn't just split into two groups. It was split into four groups. And no one was leaving. So they just kept coming together and kept coming at each other. And it was nasty. It was terrible. And Paul deals with that head on in the first three chapters of the book of Corinthians. But that wasn't all that was going on in Corinth. That that wasn't the only problem. In chapter 4, verse 18, we learn that there were some who were arrogant in the church at Corinth. And, And God hates arrogance, okay? Arrogance is bad. Arrogance is an offense against God. And even today, when someone calls a person arrogant, it's usually along with some choice words, right? No one likes being around an arrogant person. And God doesn't like it either. He despises arrogance when it infiltrates into his church. Well, then in chapter 5, it gets really bad. We learn that one man in the church at Corinth was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, we don't know if Paul was trying to soften the blow and, and say that this man was actually sleeping with his mother, or if he was, and it's probably more likely that he was sleeping with, like, his dad's second or third or fourth wife. But either way, Paul's like, even the pagans would not stoop that low. Okay, even the pagans in this sexually immoral city would not go that far. And here the church at Corinth was arrogant and boastful. In chapter 6, Paul tells that they need to stop dragging one another to court and suing one another. So can you imagine being at the church at Corinth? It's like, hell, hey guys, um, Bible study is canceled tonight because i got to take Deacon John to the courthouse and sue him. Hey, well, come watch. It'll be great. Right? That would be a terrible church to be a part of. In chapter 11, we learned that the people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Right? So when they were supposed to be commemorating Jesus' death on their behalf, they were getting sloshed. Furthermore, while half the church indulged in excess, the poor in the church were going without any food. They were starving. They were hungry. In chapter 15, verse 34, Paul says that they've been keeping bad company. So they prove the maxim that bad company corrupts good morals. Right? We've seen that their moral compass was just off. And part of the reason was because they were allowing the wrong people to influence them. Paul even goes to say that some of the Corinthians who were claiming to be part of the church had no knowledge of God. They didn't even know God. So let me ask you, if you lived back then, would this be the church you'd want to be a part of? Would this be the church you'd want your kids to grow up in? 
I doubt it. And if you were the founding pastor of this church, what would you write them when you found out this stuff? When you heard of all these problems, what would you write back and say to this church? Well, let's pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul, the founding pastor, after hearing upon these problems, he writes back and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Thanks always for Corinth? How in the world could Paul give thanks for these people? How in the world could God give thanks for a church that was so problematic, that needed so many adjustments and corrections? Let's keep reading. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul, he was going to address their problems. He was going to help make adjustments But he begins where he knew the Corinthians needed to begin. He begins with the unmerited favor of God. He begins with God's grace. Paul's focus wasn't on the problems, but it was on God's grace. Because dwelling on God's unmerited favor towards us always leads away from arrogance and towards thankfulness. So where is your focus when you think about this church? That's the question that I want us to grapple with today. Where is your focus when you think about this church? Is it on the problems? Or is it on God's grace? You know, we tend to pay attention and focus on the things that are not working. The heating and air condition, the roof leaks, the sound equipment the lack of volunteers, the lack of leaders. But Paul's focus wasn't on what was not working, but was on where God was working. You know, if we can't spot God at work in a church, we dare not try to manufacture His work through our efforts. And when we can spot God at work, we better give Him the credit. Okay, so it is crucial for a church to be able to identify the evidences of God's grace at work among them. So where is your focus when you think about this church? I'll give you an illustration from my own life this week. Um, I, I've gotten upset because there were some, I'd set out to accomplish a lot of tasks in a day and, and they just weren't getting done like I expected them to do, right? Some of you, you've had days like this. You can identify with me where you're motivated to get this to-do list done, but that first project you tackle, instead of it taking 30 minutes like you thought, it takes like an hour and a half, right? And so little irritation builds upon little irritation, and, so, and soon you just become frustrated, right? I, I had a chance to respond to how these tasks were going, or not going, and I, di- I didn't respond well, 
Okay, I, I allowed my frustrations to get the better of me. I wanted things to work like clockwork, and they, they just weren't. And so kind of my response was that I wanted to be just left alone, right? I didn't want anyone to just bother me. Because really, I just want to have a pity party. And the number one rule about a pity party is you can't invite anybody. As soon as a friend shows up, the pity party's over. Well, where this led was that the person closest to me, my wife, took the blunt of, of my frustration. Okay? And, and so I was very rude to her. I was not a loving, serving husband to her in this moment. Yet, even in my rudeness towards her, she wanted to help. Now, me and her, we can easily look back on that evening and, and we can see my sin as the problem. And it was, and I don't want to minimize that. It needs to be dealt with. But where are the eyes to see where God was at work in that situation as well? Where are the eyes to see God's Grace. You see, at the same time, I was wanting to distance myself from Lindsay because sin turns us in on ourselves where we are only focused on ourselves. Lindsay was pursuing me. She was demonstrating to me the character of God because God pursues. God invites. God draws Near. And so it was an evidence of God's grace in my life when Lindsay was reflecting him by offering to help, even when I was wanting to push her away. So do you tend to only have eyes that see the sins and the problems of others? Or do you have eyes to see God's grace at work? To be honest with you, I used to think that I was a discerning person because I went to places of higher education and I learned about theology. And, and so when a pastor would go into a sermon and, and he would stray from the meaning of the text, I, I would, that would flash on my radar. I said, no, no, that's not right. When a church was doing something that I didn't think method, methodologically fit with the gospel, I was like, no, wait a minute, that's not right. I thought I was discerning when really I was just being critical. True discernment is the ability to see where God is at work. And that's hard to do. That takes training. That takes special eyes to see. And, and so right here in the middle of this message, let's just pray. Let's ask God to give us the ability to see his grace at work, all right? Father, help train us even now to see where you are at work in our midst. Train us to see the evidences of your grace as we see how Paul himself was focused on your grace. Amen. All right, so now let's pick back up in verse 5 and join with me as Paul himself begins to focus on where God's grace is at work in this church. Here he unpacks what this gift of grace entails, and he says that in every way you, church at Corinth, were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say that God has given this church a few things. But he says that God has enriched this church in every way in Christ Jesus. That's a bold truth. But then Paul gets specific. He doesn't leave it as God has blessed you, but he actually points out two specific blessings that God has given them. These blessings that he highlights are speech and knowledge. Okay, so in the church at Corinth, there was an evident measure of God's grace in their speech and in their knowledge. What's interesting is that throughout this letter, Paul rebukes the Corinthians because they had misused these specific gifts of speech and knowledge. Remember how I said that they were arrogant? They had used their knowledge of God's love to puff them up. And then others had this gift of speech. And so what they would do when they gathered together is that they would stand up and they would speak so that others would think that they were more holy because of their eloquence or because of their ability to, to speak in other languages. And so others started seeking that gift because they felt that they were inferior until they had arrived at that gift of speech. So here we, we find a common warning throughout Scripture. And that is that we must be careful to use God's gifts in a way that honor Him. We must use God's gifts to honor Him. It's so easy, for instance, if a person has the gift of leadership to think that they are more important than those who do not have the gift of leadership. It's easy to use our gifts to bring attention to ourselves when God intends for us to use our gifts to serve one another and highlight His goodness and His grace. So Paul is highlighting speech and knowledge, two things that the Corinthians became proud of, two things that they were arrogant about, and he's reminding them that they are the unmerited gifts of God. They did nothing to earn these gifts. So Paul identifies the gifts, but he points back to the giver. Because as we said earlier, remembering God's unmerited favor always leads us away from arrogance and towards thankfulness. Then in verse 6, Paul is saying that these evident gifts, that they're a testimony that God is working among them and in them. And in verse 7, again, here's a bold statement. You are not lacking in any gift. First Baptist Iker, do you believe that? Do you believe that you're not lacking in any gift? It's easy as a small church to look at these big mega churches to see their staff of like 50 plus pastors and their worship band and, and the latest technology that they use in their services and their buildings that are just big and grand and say, wow, we, we lack. God's saying, you lack nothing to do what I have called you to do. Do you believe that? just because a church doesn't lack in any gift doesn't mean that that church has arrived doesn't mean that that church is complete is finished there is still a yearning 
look back at the end of verse 7. It says, as you eagerly wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to gather his church, and it's going to be awesome. Right now we experience his gifts, but then we will experience him. This reminds me of the storyline of, of so many classic romantic novels where guy and a girl, they fall in love, and then the guy goes off to war. Well, imagine that that couple married before he left for war. While the man is away, while the husband is away, they would write each other letters, and those letters would be very dear. They would be treasured. And while the husband was, was away, all of his belongings would be in the possession of his wife. So all of her needs were actually cared for. She has a home, a roof over her head. She's got clothes. She gets the money from her husband's service in the military. But she is yearning for her husband to return home. You see, the gifts are only to remind us of who the giver is. The gifts are to teach us that God is generous, that God provides for his people. But what we really long for is not just the gifts, but the giver himself. And one day, the giver will come, and we will be united with him. Now, before we read verse 8 again, I want you to think about all the problems in the church at Corinth. Think about all those problems we talked about. Getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Sleeping around. Fighting arrogance. Think about those. Those problems caused by sin. And where's, where's their hope for a church like that? Now, verse 8. Christ will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless. No church is perfect because people aren't perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We have all failed to live up to God's standard. You see, God has given each of us life. He's the creator. He's the author of life. He's given you your life. And he expected you to live a certain way, but we've all failed. We've all failed to honor the giver with how we've used his gift. Because we've all lived for ourselves and for our own glory. Romans 3.23 says that we've all fallen short. And, and we get this because we all fall short even of our own standards. I fell short earlier this week, of my standard of a productive day. But here's the good news that the Bible tells us, that though guilty as we are, Christ will wash away our guilt. Christ will wash away your guilt if you place your trust and hope in Him. But some of you are trusting in the fact that you're a good person, and you're hoping that that will get you into heaven. There's not a chance. There's no way that that's going to get you in heaven because to get into heaven, you would have to have been perfect and there was only one who was perfect and that was Jesus. 
And Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. And at the end of that perfect life, he laid down his life on your behalf to pay for your wrongs. To wipe them away. To give you a clean slate. To make you new. So if you've never placed your trust and hope in him, if you find yourself hoping in other things, trusting in other things, then know that today you can place your trust and hope in him and he will take away the guilt. He will wash away the shame. And in the day that he returns, you will find yourself guiltless. Paul goes on in verse 9 with this reminder, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. God will carry out the good work that he has begun in you. God will complete the good work that he has begun in this church, First Baptist Eichert. God is faithful to his church. He is abundantly generous, and he will not abandon. God is abundantly generous, and he will not abandon his people. So why love the church? Why love the church? Love the church because the church is where God is at work. The church is who God has chosen to be his recipients of grace. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, Paul tells the church at Corinth that you are God's field. Okay, I don't own a field. I own maybe the footprint that my house is under. But I'm sure that some of you own property, you own field. And I suspect that you care about how that field is treated. Right? You're invested in that field. And you're not going to let just anyone build a road on that property that's yours without permission or payment. You want to use that field to benefit you. The church is God's field. It's where he is invested. The church is his field where he sends his labors to make sure that it's cared for. To make sure that it's watered, provided for. The church is God's field where God works first, most, and best. And so why love the church? Because you don't want to miss out on God's best. You don't want to miss out on where God is at work in this world. You don't want to distance yourself from the grace that God gives to his church. God is generous to his church. God is faithful to his church. Another way to say that is that God is committed to his church. Are you? Christy, praise team, why don't you guys come on up here? We're going to transition to a time of response. And so, my question for you is, what's your next step? If you're being pressed, if you're being challenged through this message in your own commitment to the local church, what is your next step? For some of you, This is maybe the first time you've shown up in church in a while. I would challenge you 
to commit to visiting a church every week for the next eight weeks. I'm not even saying it has to be this church. But commit to visiting one church for the next eight weeks. All the while praying, God, help me to commit to where you are at work. Maybe your next step is, is to, when we finish here, turn to the next person and say, hey, which life application group are you in? Because you come here to the main services on Sundays and then, and then you get in your car and you drive away. Your next step is to go to a life application group. Our small groups where you can really connect with people. Right? What's your next step? Use this time as we sing. Go ahead and stand. Use this time to make that commitment to God of how He is pressing you on this issue. The first step is always to commit yourself to Him, to give your life to Him. If you've never done that, that is the ultimate first step. And so if you have questions with that, I'll be here. I invite you to come and, and, and ask me your questions. Let me pray for you. And then when I get done praying, we're going to sing and you make these commitments. Father God, I pray for these people, these people who are your church. Father, I pray that they would desire what you desire for them and that they would commit themselves to loving and growing in the community of believers that you have provided for. You know, I look forward to our time together. My wife is coming. She's in route. Um, and so I'll get to hang out with you guys later. Kenny? Um, our deacon of the week for this week is uh, Brother Jimmy Hips, who is uh, gloating over all the Tar Heels, which, Robert, I did not gloat this morning. So I, I love you, brother. That would be Jimmy Hips. Uh, his uh, numbers are there, and I'm sure that he'd love to serve you this week. Uh, also, uh, I'd like to call attention to uh, all of our FBI ladies. If you'd like to uh, join a Bible study with uh, our new pastor, Michael will be teaching uh, New Testament uh, 1 and 2 uh, this spring at uh, the Biblical Women's Institute at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, classes are online, and they're only $25, but you need to register soon. Uh, also, I'd love to invite everyone to stay uh, after uh, life application. Uh, for not only good food, but uh, for celebration of life, uh, celebration of life of Drew, uh, celebration of the life of our church uh, that uh, you know God has done through uh, Pastor Brian and Lindsay. Miss um, Paula asked me to remind everyone that today is the last day if you'd like to uh, sign up to go to the ACC Women's Basketball Tournament. Apparently that is open for males too because my son uh, wants to go to the Women's Tournament. Is that my kid? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but please see uh, Miss Paula uh, if you'd like to go that. And also this message is for uh, Chad Crisco. He wanted me to remind everybody that uh, just because our pastor search team is finished uh, with its job, that our leadership team is not finished. And so he wanted me to call attention uh, on the very back of your program that uh, the leadership team is, is, is listed there. And uh, our time of prayer for those guys continues. Uh, and so if you'll just take that home and put it somewhere where you can find it uh, and just lift these guys up in prayer. Uh, you know, Christ is our ultimate leader. Just because uh, Pastor Michael's uh, coming in a few weeks, that doesn't mean that the leadership's uh, team, uh, their job gets any easier. They'll continue on, so continue to lift them up. And does anybody else have any announcements that I didn't know? Brother Ned.
Okay, if we have nothing further, then uh, please, uh, if you don't have a, a life application group to go to, see me. You can come with mine.